Samuel chapter 21, we're going to look at three different scenes that take place in the life of uh, David, and uh, the first one starts in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles open, that would be great. I'm going to read it in just a moment. Uh, before I do that, though, let's uh, pray for a moment together, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. It is our joy to sing of your great faithfulness and your mercies that are new every morning. We sing that together with joy today while the sun is shining and it is uh, wonderfully warm and dry outside. And yet we think of our brothers and sisters this morning in uh, Corpus Christi and in Texas who are waking up to vastly different conditions. Lord, we pray for uh, those uh, followers of Jesus there that their faith would not fail and that they would be able to sing of your faithfulness, even in the midst of their despair and sorrow. There are um, churches that have been ruined and houses that are ruined, Christian schools that are, um, their buildings are are uh, soggy today. Lord, we pray that you would uh, grant them mercy and grace. We pray that their perseverance and their compassion and their generosity in the midst of their own suffering would uh, persevere and would endure. Lord, for Governor Abbott and those who uh, counsel him, we, we pray that they would be, uh, that you would endue them with wisdom to uh, make good decisions and helpful choices, uh, help them to allocate resources in ways that will best help and protect and care for those Uh, residents who are most suffering. Uh, Father, show mercy this morning and kindness to those who live in Texas and are experiencing this great rain. Father, uh, Steve has uh, shared with us a number of ways in which we can pray for him and and Barb and the ministry that they're doing. Thank you for this upcoming school year. Father, we pray that you would open doors of opportunity for them so that they can teach your word in uh, all of the schools that they have set their heart and mind upon. Lord, we uh, pray for um, favor for them in the eyes of the administration, the teachers and parents who will be entrusting their children into the Scherzer's care. We pray that in their teaching, Jesus Christ would be praised and lifted up and the foolishness of the cross would be um, exalted and welcomed and received gladly by these children. Lord, as we now look into your word, we do pray that you would open our eyes and ears so we might see things and hear things that we need. Uh, Lord, we need you to orient our hearts, to reorient them again to the wonder of, of your faithfulness to us. Uh, We pray that you would um, correct us and instruct us and teach us. Do that because we are prone to wander. Uh, So um, uh, speak to us through your word, this living, powerful book. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 21, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered Ahimelech the priest, 
The king sent me on a mission and, and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I, ha- I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever else you, you, you can find. But the priest answered, David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there's some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, indeed, women have been kept from us. As usual, whenever I set out, the men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a sword or a spear here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If if you want to take it, there's no sword here but that one. David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. That day David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David the tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, Look at this man. He's crazy. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? (laughs) David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah and Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left it and went to the forest of Heret. Three scenes from the life of David. And this morning I want to talk to you about fear. Specifically, the confusion that happens in the midst of fear and how God responds to us when we are afraid. Do you remember the the phrase uh, shock and awe? Uh, Shock and awe is an expression that came into our vocabulary in 2003 during the first United States uh, war in Iraq. It comes from a book that was written in 1996 by uh, two military strategists named uh, Harold Ulmer and James Wade. And the idea behind shock and awe is that you so overwhelm your enemy with force that you destroy their will to resist. You use bombs and tanks and missiles and strikes to introduce just this paralyzing fear into your opponents. David is experiencing a little bit of shock and awe here in this chapter. He's, he's on the run. And in, in this section, his, his faith is faltering. He has gone from one of the greatest triumphs of his life in the world, really, defeating the Philistine giant Goliath, to running in mortal fear because Saul the king is out for his blood. So you see the contrast here. And what's, 
What's kind of funny about this chapter is as he's running, 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 Goliath is just all over this chapter. His sword, his hometown. God, God just won't let him forget that. You can put yourself in David's shoes. It's not that hard to do. Sometimes with God you feel like you can, you can set the whole world on fire because your prayers are being answered. You've been inspired by some sermon or song or a book. or uh, You're ready to go. Sometimes, though, don't you, you feel like you just wish the world would leave you alone because it feels like God has left you alone. Why shouldn't everybody just leave you alone? It's not hard to put yourself in David's shoes. God has not promised to keep us from dangerous situations. In fact, sometimes God sends us straight into David's situation, into dangerous, David, David, not David, dangerous situations. David's on the run here. He's going to be on the run for eight chapters. Uh, if, if I could, just for a minute, can I place this story in the context of the overall uh, story of the Bible? David is in the wilderness. I, and it should remind you of other wilderness stories. And remember, this is how narratives in the Bible work. They work on the pe- uh, basis of repeated patterns. We're supposed to see how different people in similar situations respond. Well, David's in the wilderness here. In the book of Exodus, God sent his people Israel into the wilderness. He rescued them from a king who was trying to kill them. Uh, the king's name was Pharaoh. Uh, th- in fact, when they first left Pharaoh, uh, the king uh, tried to chase them. They wandered in the wilderness, and soon after they uh, started, God gave them bread from heaven. And they met all sorts of enemies, and they had to deal with those enemies. Most of them were uh, aggressive towards them. And the chief question that the nation of Israel had to answer is, will you trust God in the wilderness? Well, here God has sent David away from a king who's trying to kill him, namely Saul. He, he runs to the wilderness and he meets the same sort of people the Israelites did, the Moabites and other people like that. Uh, and the first thing he does is he tries to find bread and he gets bread from heaven. Well, not heaven exactly, but the tabernacle, which is about as close to heaven on earth as you can get. And the king chases him, Saul. Hmm. Samuel, the book, spends a lot of time comparing David and Joseph in the book of Genesis. They're they're very similar characters. Both of them, when they were teenagers, received promises from God about how the the role they would play in God's plans. And both of them, before they assumed those roles, went through great periods of suffering. And David here is suffering in the wilderness. David's not the last person, of course, in the Bible to go into the wilderness. Jesus went into the wilderness too. He was tempted by his enemy, and the first temptation was over bread. Will you trust, will Jesus trust his father or not? It's the question he faces in the wilderness. You know, in this chapter, uh, David is more like faithless Israel than he is like the Lord Jesus. I know that because of what verse 12 says tells us about David, how it characterizes him. It says, again, David took these words to heart and was very much afraid. It's the first time in the book of Samuel that the Bible says that David was afraid. Saul's been afraid. The Israelites have been afraid. David is very much afraid. Actually, the tone of this whole chapter is set by by the question in verse 1, when Ahimelech, it says he trembles. Ahimelech trembles at the beginning of this chapter, and David appears to be shaking all the way through. 
This is a story about wavering faith. But it's also a story about God's faithfulness. And to unfold this story this morning, I have two simple admonitions that I want to give to you. Uh, Two lessons from these three scenes for when your faith wavers, when you're afraid. And here's the first one. Uh, Beware of where you turn for safety. Beware of where you turn for safety. This passage is asking you to have a little bit of self-awareness. When you're afraid, what do you do? How do you respond? What sort of coping mechanisms do you have in mind when you're afraid? I bet you know in your own life, don't you? You see patterns in your own life? Well, what does David do? David turns to three different things, three different means to find safety. And I want to talk about those for just a minute. The first thing David turns to is the sword of Goliath. He leans on the sword of Goliath. Let me explain. It'll take a little bit here. Remember when we last met uh, David, David was outside of the uh, Israelite uh, capital uh, the, the, where the king, of Saul, the king Saul, where he reigned in the city of Gibeah. He was outside Gibeah with his friend Jonathan, who was the crown prince. And Jonathan had warned David, you've got to run because my dad, my father, the king, wants to kill you. You've got to run. So he's running. Uh, there's no place for him to go that's safe. So the first place, though, he stops is Nob, the city of Nob. Um, strange name, the doors and knob. So he goes to, I don't know, that's just, yeah. so he goes to Nob, and Nob is the place where the priests are, and uh, they have a tabernacle set up. doesn't have the Ark of the Covenant, but there's some sort of building, a place where they worship God, and the ephod is there, and the priests are there. And uh, Ahimelech sees, the priest, uh, sees David running, and he says to him, Why are you alone? David is one of Saul's generals, Generals never go anywhere alone. Why are you alone? That question is here to make us think about how perilous David's situation is. It's kind of like what happens when one of your friends looks at you and you're having a rough period of time, you didn't get much sleep or you're not feeling well, and one of your friends comes up to you and says, man, you look terrible. You say, thank you for the encouragement. You just look terrible. Why are you alone? What's wrong? Then David lies to him. Do you notice all those lies that David told in this passage? Uh, some, some commentators try to spin this a little bit, and they say that, that David is the king that David must be referring to as God himself. And that, that's, so he's not really lying, because God sent him on a mission. Or some people say that by lying to this, uh, David is doing Ahimelech uh, a favor because he's trying to give him plausible deniability later when Saul comes. Ahimelech can say, I I don't know, I don't know anything about this. The problem is that David weaves together this detailed story about the men that are with him and their planned rendezvous. He lies all about this, this issue of the, of the bread and how he's going to get the bread. Now, the bread is not crucial to the story of David's fear, but it's interesting in, in the Bible. So this is the tabernacle. that There's a, a place where they worship God. And as Moses had said in the book of Leviticus, they were to put bread in the tabernacle. It was to be changed regularly. And when the old bread was taken out and new bread was put in, the priests and only the priests could eat the old bread. Now, when David asks for bread, Ahimelech says, well, I don't, I don't, I don't have any bread, any, any bread except the consecrated bread that had been in the tabernacle, and you can only eat it if your men are ceremonially clean. That's what he means when he says if they've 
kept themselves from women? Are they, are they ceremonially clean? Uh, David says, of course they are. He didn't have any men with him. Of course they are. Um, my men, whenever we go to war, we're, we're clean. We're, we're holy when we go to war. They, they fight holy war. They're always qualifying. In fact, he, he kind of implies to them, I wonder, maybe it's been suggested, that, that his men took Nazarite vows when they went to fight wars. They were doing God's work, and, and, and they were holy just like a priest. So you, you can give us the bread. Jesus referred to this incident in Mark chapter 2. I wrote down those verses. Uh, it's in several of the Gospels, actually. Look at Mark chapter 2 and, and uh, follow what it says here. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walking along as they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus is paralleling his situation with David's in a couple of important ways. On the one hand, Jesus is arguing this is a situation in the Bible and there are some in the Scriptures where the ceremonial law can be set aside for the sake of compassion. So uh, the disciples are hungry, and they're, they're um, rubbing the grain to, to eat it, eat some of it, and uh, David is hungry. And for the sake of compassion for these hungry men, the ceremonial law can be set aside. Actually, there's even more here going on, if we're going to read carefully into the text. Um, David is the anointed king of Israel. He's God's king, but nobody recognizes it except an unruly band of fugitives. We'll come to those a little bit later. Jesus is God's anointed king, but nobody recognizes it except for this group of 12 guys he's got with him, this unruly band. Even more so here, David, uh, Jesus says that he has the authority to redefine the law. Jesus is not just the king who sits under the authority of God's law. That's true. But he is the one who has the authority to interpret it, uh, interpret God's law and tell us what it means. He's more than just God's king. He's like David in that his followers can, can, can eat the grain. But he's more than David because he has the right to interpret what the, the Sabbath means, what the law means. Well, so David gets the bread here. And in verse 8, he asks, um, do you happen to have a spear or a sword lying around? I think that's a disingenuous question. Do you know why I think that's a disingenuous question? Do you remember that David had done something with Goliath's sword? David had taken Goliath's sword and he had placed it here in Nob with these priests. He knew very well that there was a sword that Ahimelech had. Now, it's not wrong to be armed. That's not at all what I'm saying here. But David's attitude towards this, chain, this sword has changed dramatically. Do you have a spear or sword? I really need it. In chapter 17, when Goliath is opposing the, the army of Israel and David is running out to him, do you know what he says to him? He says to Goliath, You come at me with a spear and a sword. Same words here in verse 8. David had said, you come at me with a spear or sword, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. Implying 
If God is with me, your sword means nothing except right now when he really needs something to protect him and help him. He needs that sword. In fact, there is nothing like that sword. Give it to me. See how David's attitude towards that sword has changed? Beware of what you turn to for safety in moments when you're afraid. Now, where else does David go? David goes to Gath, which is the city of the Philistines. He goes to Israelites, Israel's enemies. Why does he go to Israel's enemies? Well, that's the last place that Saul is going to look for you. Right? But it's incredibly dangerous. He, he takes Goliath's sword into Goliath's hometown. Don't you think someone might recognize it? I think he wants to he wants to remain anonymous but but they recognize him uh they they say oh there's the king there's david the one who's killed so many of us so to protect himself now he pretends to be insane so wonderful they poke fun at the philistines a little bit here verse 15 where the philistine king says aren't there enough crazy people in this town you got to bring me one more crazy person <laughs> he uh scratches at the door he drools on himself there's a denial of who David is. First, in this story, he has acted like Goliath. What has he done? He's taken Goliath's sword into Goliath's hometown. David, you should not act like Goliath. And the second thing he does here, now he's acting like Saul, who's the other deranged person in this story. David. He trusts in his sword, then he trusts in Israel's enemies, and third, he runs to a stronghold. He runs to a stronghold. That's the third place he trusts. That's a key word in the first five verses of chapter 22. Uh, before we do that, we should, we should talk about these men that he gathers to himself. Verse 2 says that uh, those who were in distress or debt, in debt or discontented gathered around him. I bet that was a happy bunch, right? Well, Saul is, or David is somewhat collecting a court, right? King needs a court, and, and David is, is collecting these men who are coming around him. It must have been hard to lead those men. Can you imagine? Um, we're going to come to it. David is confronted with Saul at various points in time. And how do you suppose that these men who are in distress or debt or discontented would encourage him to act towards Saul? Actually, what's happening here is that David is learning how to be a king because when he sits on the throne, he's going to be surrounded with people with radically different personalities and passions and problems, and he's going to have to move them together. This is, uh, the Bible here is pointing out one of the great challenges of leadership. How do you, how do you move this motley crew with so many different interests and temperaments uh, forward? He's training to be king. Like being the Awana commander, you want to move all these people together. It's impossible. Right? He goes to Moab, he leaves them together, uh, his parents there for safety. Then he takes up residence in what the text says is his stronghold. Verse 4 talks about his stronghold. I don't know where that is. Nobody knows where his stronghold is. But the prophet Gad comes from God and says to him, don't stay here in the stronghold Go into the land of Judah. David thinks it's safe. He thinks that the stronghold is where he should go to be safe. In 2 Samuel 22.3, at the end of his life, when David is reflecting on what God has done for him and how God has provided for him, David says that God is his stronghold. It's an important distinction. 
Beware of where you turn for safety. Do you recognize it in your life when, when you're trusting in someone or something other than God himself? Do you, know, do you know where you turn? Ann Beck was a Sunday school teacher. She tells about it. She and her husband were teaching the class for two and three-year-olds, and part of their lesson, they were teaching them Psalm 56.3, When I am afraid, I will trust in you. It's a good verse to teach a two- and three-year-old. When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Well, that same week that they had taught that verse to to their class, there was a terrible storm that came through the town. Lightning, thunder, they lost power, and uh, everybody in Anne's house woke up, including their son, Mark, who was in her Sunday school class. Well, they were scrounging around to find candles and and, um, matches, and, and Mark, their son, proudly announced, I'm not afraid. His mother, you know, she's thinking about teacher of the year here, she, she turns to her son and she says, Oh, Mark, tell us why you're not afraid. And he said, Because I have my flashlight. <laughs> of course you're not afraid. You have a flashlight. Who needs God when you have a flashlight? Right? You never say it out loud, but you could finish the sentence, right? And in fact, sometimes you do in your own life. Who needs God? I've got a... Well, let, let, me, let me suggest some ways that people fill that in, Right? Um, popular answers, things people trust in besides God. First of all, plans. Who needs God? I've got a plan. Plans are important. Plans are useful. You should make plans. I believe in plans. But plans are not the guarantee that you will be safe. When I asked Kathy's parents uh, for permission to propose to her, I went to their house, and and, uh, they are, are excellent stewards of the things that they have. And they sat me down and they asked, said to me, okay, Joel, how are you going to provide for and support uh, uh, our daughter, your wife? How are you going to do this? Well, I had plans. I told them all of my plans. Not one of my plans came to fruition. They all fell through. Every single one of my plans. But God took care of us. Some of you find it easy to trust in people. So you move on from your plans and we don't need, I don't need God, I have people. Um, People are good. It's good to have these things. But you turn to friends or a spouse or your children or a counselor. All of these people may be a great blessing to you, but no human being can bear the weight of all of your fears. You'll crush them with your fears. Some of you are inclined to trust your possessions. Your possessions. If you have enough stuff, you'll always be prepared and you'll never have to worry So if you get more stuff, if you fill your house and fill your house with stuff, lots and lots of stuff, you'll be safe. Some of you think that that people fill their houses with stuff because they're lazy or dirty. They're actually filling their house with stuff because they're afraid. Some of us turn to pleasure when we're afraid. Uh, distractions. I want to be distracted from my fears. So I'm going to turn to food or sex or binge-watching television or liking every comment on Facebook ever made. Or I'm going to turn to sleep. I'm going to find my safety in sleep. I'm going to escape. You have a default mode of what you do when you're afraid. Do you know what it is? It'd be a great discussion for your accountability group or your prayer partners when you're not praying or when you're not being accountable, what do you do to deal with your fear? What do you turn to? 
We realize as followers of Jesus how antithetical these resources are to, to our confidence in the gospel. Think about, me, think about this with me here. We believe that the Bible tells us that the greatest threat that we are facing, the greatest threat that we are facing is the wrath of God. We're by nature children of wrath. That is, our sinful life of rebellion against God merits His righteous wrath. He has determined to fix the world that we have broken. And part of the problem is that we are broken ourselves. Perhaps not the ultimate illustration, but every homeowner here, you've had invaders in your house of some kind, right? Some sort of pest that gets in. And they make a mess. I'm not talking about your children. That's not what I'm talking about. But you have some sort of, well, mice, rats, bats, ants, cockroaches, bugs. They get in somehow, right? And they do all kinds of damage. They can um, chew through holes. and They make holes in the walls. They can chew through wires. They can leave droppings everywhere. It's just gross. So you get rid of them, right? You go in and you, you clean the mess that they make and you eliminate the pests, right? Why would you clean the mess and not eliminate the, the mice, right? They're just going to do it again. Well, the Bible tells us that we are pests in God's house. Worse than that. We're rebellious children in God's house. The greatest threat that we are facing us is the fact that God is going to come and fix his house that we have broken. There's only one solution to this problem that we have, this thing of which we should be afraid. There is only one solution. Jesus bore God's wrath for us on the cross. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. And he rose again. And he said it himself. No one can escape my Father's wrath. Well, he said, no one can come to the Father except through me. That's by trusting in what he did on the cross, by turning to him and making this conscious decision of dependence, relying solely on his work. We're tempted to find some other way. We're tempted to fix this problem in some other way. Uh, If we're good enough or if we're sacrificial enough or holy enough, if we give enough away or if we leave the world a better place or if we recycle or if we just are a nice person, then, then God will probably grade on a curve and we'll be fine. It's not what the Bible says at all. Trusting in Jesus is the only solution. It's what makes you a Christian. You're not a Christian if you do not believe. The Bible tells us very clearly what you should fear. You must fear God's wrath. You should fear it more than you fear anything else that you're afraid of. You make a list of all the things you're afraid of. I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid of being broke. I'm afraid of getting sick. I'm afraid of uh, being rejected. You you make the whole list. Number one on your list should be God's righteous wrath. The only solution is Jesus himself. So we trust in him. You must trust in him. And since you have trusted Christ for the worst thing that you could possibly face, do you think it's possible that he might be trustworthy for whatever else uh, is troubling you right now? You think that's maybe a possibility? It's a good possibility. It's a glorious possibility. 
it's why two-thirds of the psalm... Well, we face this temptation to trust in other things all the time, which is why two-thirds of the psalms say that God is our refuge. He's our refuge. He's our refuge. I'm trying to find refuges everywhere else. But God is our refuge. Where do you go? Where do you go when you're afraid? Have you thought about it? Does your best friend know where you go? I bet your spouse does, but she probably doesn't want to talk about it with you. That's the first admonition in the text, all right? Here's the second one, all right? Here's the second admonition in the text. Listen to God's reminders of his promises. Listen to God's reminders of his promises. This is a passage about David's wavering faith, and it's a passage about God's faithfulness. David is on the run, but God's with him, and he reminds him of that. Look at how he does it three ways. Verse 9, through the priest Ahimelech, the priest says, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, and then he adds this, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It's an unnecessary phrase. Doesn't need to belong. It doesn't need to be there for the sentence to make sense. But the priest is reminding him, David, remember you killed Goliath and you're on the run from Saul? Run from Saul? Well, so the priest reminds him. Then the Philistines themselves remind him. <laughs> That's wonderful. Verse 11, they say, oh, David, the king's here. He's the king. David, you're the king. Do you remember, David, you're the king? This is part of God's plan. You're the king. And do you remember what you've done, David? That you've slain tens of thousands? Do you remember that? God uses the Philistines. Then God uses the, the prophet Gad. Gad is important in David's life. So David's building a court. In your court, you need a prophet. And Gad comes with David. And, and Gad accompanies David all over the place for the, while he's running. Gad writes some of the records of David's court. And, and Gad says to David, you don't, you don't belong in the stronghold. You belong in the land of Judah. You're the king. Remember, go back. And all along the way, as he runs, God speaks to David to remind him of his promises. Do you have ears to hear God remind you? The news on Monday was all about the eclipse. Eclipse, eclipse, eclipse. That was everybody, all everybody was talking about. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said something about spiritual eclipses. Listen to what he said. A total eclipse, he said, is one of the most terrible and grand sights that ever will be seen. But thank God, whatever eclipse happens to a Christian, it is never a total eclipse. There is always a ring of comfort left. There is always a crescent of love and mercy to shine upon God's child. Do you have eyes to see that? Ears to hear that? How does God speak to us? How does he remind us of his promises? Well, in his word, clearly. Sometimes God speaks through a friend. Last week we sang, sang the song, uh, uh, the servant song. Do you remember one of the verses? I will hold the Christ light for you in the nighttime eye of your fear. I will hold my hand out to you and speak the peace you long to hear. What if God sent your friend to speak peace to you in the fear that you're experiencing this week? Are you ready to hear? Sometimes he speaks uh, through the songs that we sing. Ephesians 5 says that we sing to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's why we sing in our, our congregation. One of the reasons that we do. Sometimes you, you come to church and maybe you look at the list of songs and you're like, oh, I don't like any of these songs that we're going to sing. Is it possible this morning that someone in the room 
needed to see you singing great is thy faithfulness gladly to God because they're struggling to believe that God's faithfulness is great and they look at you and they see, look at that guy. He's he's normal and he thinks God's faithfulness is is sufficient. I, I, I can trust in him too. Sing to one another psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sometimes God, God uh, reminds us of his promises as we, as we pray together. The elder or Pastor Scott prays and, and we remember God's... God, if God can keep the sun in the sky and he moves it from side to side, um, like Psalm 19 tells us, he, he, can, he can uphold you too. He can sustain you too. Maybe one of the ways that you should respond to fear or the sudden influx of anxiety is to ask God to give you ears to hear, to listen to the reminders of his promises. Because that's what God does for his people. It appears in the Bible that David eventually got it here. His faith wavered here, but eventually he looked back at this event and he saw God at work. I know that because of what he wrote in Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is a passage of scripture and it says at the top, the title is, this is a psalm that David wrote when he pretended to be insane before Ahimelech, who, who, Abimelech who drove him away and, and he left. So listen to what Psalm 34 says. I'm going to read the first few verses. I wrote it down that sheet. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears when I was very much afraid. Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. It's an odd sentence. The reason I think it's odd is because David has been drooling all over his face. I think he's come to learn this. Took him a while. He learned it. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. I don't know when, but sometime this occurred to David. Even when he was very low, when he was very afraid, God was still with him. He was protecting him and providing for him. And he finally figured out, and he wrote Psalm 34, so that you wouldn't have to go through that same experience to figure it out. Have you figured it out? God is more faithful to you than you are to Him. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Father, we come before you this morning and we confess to you that we are a fearful people. We are prone to worry and prone to be anxious. And, and some of us in particular feel this. We're beset all day with, with circumstances that make us afraid. With long lists, reasons that we shake and, and our minds just over and over and over again dwell on these fearful things. Father, I thank you that you are faithful to us even in the midst of our wavering faith. I do pray that as we've thought about David and his running, that you would give us insight into what we turn to for safety and that you would help us to see how unsubstantial they are in light of our 
call to trust in you. Father, I pray for these dear brothers and sisters of mine and and those who are afraid that they would have ears to hear how you are with us, that you are with us, that your promises are sure and secure. I pray that according to your kindness, you would use us as brothers and sisters in Christ to remind one another of your great and precious promises. Oh Lord, teach us that we might sing Psalm 34. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Your faithfulness to us is great, and we give you thanks for it. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.